Thank you, David. I was just thinking there are only two reasons why I can't play the piano like you. First is talent, and the other is time spent learning how to play. I, my favorite story about my piano playing skills is that I took piano from a teacher who put me in a book called Teaching Little Fingers to Play. And by the time I got done with that book, my fingers were too big, so I quit. That's all right. It's my only joke about my piano playing. So now you've heard it. Would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? We're working through the book of Romans, and we're at Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Paul writes this, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. May God bless this passage to our hearts. You may be seated. Death reigns is the central concept of this passage. The universal flood of Noah's day brought death to all the inhabitants of the world except for a family of eight. The Jewish nation was very aware that death rules when as they marched through the wilderness all men over 20 years of age died. In those 40 years there were 41 funerals of men plus, that was on average, and plus the death of any children or women who didn't make it into the uh, promised land. Death still reigns today. Last year, 7,452 Americans died. That's one every 12 seconds. So two or three people have died since I started this message. I was looking at the Mercury News this morning and there were f over four pages of obituaries. I checked it out carefully and did not find my name so I decided to come and preach to you this morning. As a matter of fact, there's not one person alive today that was living 130 years ago. The death rate is still the same, one per person. Now with that encouraging background, let's turn to our text this morning. This paragraph opens a new segment of the book of Romans. We are now leaving behind justification and we're going on to sanctification. We must answer the question now, what happens in the life of a believer when sin enters in? We're approaching the issue of sin in daily living. But before the subject is considered, we must understand the doctrinal background of our victory. Paul discusses this in verses 12 through 21. My first point this morning is the statement of the principle in verse 12, and then my first point under that is the entrance of sin. Therefore, 
just as through one man's sin entered just therefore just as through one man's sin entered into the world the therefore of course runs us back to everything that Paul has said already but I wanted to emphasize the word as this introduces a comparison which we will consider over the next few messages in brief we can sketch this out as Adam led to sin and death so Christ leads to righteousness and life let me expand this a bit more Adam sinned and death was introduced into the human race spiritual death was immediate and physical death was eventual 930 years later Adam died uh, some might be sitting there thinking do you really think they lived that long yes the Bible says so and these men and women were fresh from the hand of God designed to live forever and so for them to only live 930 years was to cut their life dramatically short as you look at the life of Adam the outstanding thing in his life was not naming the animals the outstanding thing in his life was not being the first husband the outstanding thing in his life was sin this was the legacy he left for everyone who was to follow him in the human race in stark contrast Jesus Christ never sinned he was absolutely righteous that qualified him to die as our substitute and the substitute for all men so that they could go from spiritual death to spiritual life what a contrast between Adam and the second Adam Christ the word enter in the verse has the idea of invasion or intrusion we get this a thief is an intruder God had created a world which was perfect and a man who was sinless and immortal but Adam fouled up this whole picture sin invaded as a thief to rob us of more than we can even begin to understand Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.14 and it was not Adam who was deceived keep that word in mind but the woman being deceived fell into transgression Adam sinned purposefully hatefully he rebelled against God and went his own way Eve was tricked in sin and then invited her husband to come along and that set up a principle that's followed through, down through all the ages ever since sinners like other people to join them in their sin listen to the story of how this all happened in Genesis 3 1 through 6 now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made and he said to the woman indeed has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden the woman said to the serpent from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it he never said that he never said you can't touch it or you will die 
The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was the delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. It was as though Adam said, I know I have everything north, south, east, and west of this tree, but so long as I cannot eat the fruit of this tree, something is being withheld from me. From me, Adam. Do you realize who I am? Am I not Lord of creation? Am I not superior to the animals which I have named? There's an injustice here. Something in my domain which is being withheld from me. I shall right that wrong. I will reach out my hand and take this fruit and eat it. And thereby I shall complete, have complete control of my domain. Now we must watch ourselves. Because we fall into the same trap that Adam did. Who said, I've got all this but I'd like something new. I'd like something more. It's the syndrome of the new. Think about these areas. The new home. People often buy a home and later move up because they want to have a better home or a better neighborhood or both. Very soon after they move in, they find out there are all kinds of flaws in their new home. And then they begin to focus on the flaws instead of the, all the good benefits of this home that caused them to purchase it in the first place. A new car. No matter how nice your car is, there's always one that comes out that's better. In yesterday's paper, it said that there are luxury pickup trucks that go for as high as $100,000. I'm not in the market for a luxury pickup truck. This morning in the paper, there was a Lexus 500. That was a nice little car for $111,000. When I was young, there were certain people that I saw in my church that would buy a car every three years. They would finance it for three years, and when they were done financing it, they would just buy another one. In my estimation, they were rich. See, what my parents would do is, they would buy one of those three-year-old cars, or maybe four years old. And they would drive it then until the sides rusted out of it. Because we lived in New York State and they, they put salt on the roads in the wintertime. A new phone. Apple has become one of the biggest companies in America because they have capitalized on the idea that you've got to have the latest new computer and you've got to have the latest new phone. Oh, you only have an iPhone 7? Well, did you not know that there are Apple 
iPhone 10s. In fact, there are two grades of them. I'm sure one is more expensive than the other. A new wife or a new husband. If only I had a new wife, then I would be really happy. This was so prevalent among men that when God gave the Ten Commandments, he included this order. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Stop looking over the fence. After all, your neighbor is looking over the fence at your wife. A new job. How soon that job you thought was so wonderful and you were so grateful for becomes anything but perfect. Now we caught this from Adam, looking at things we do not have and focusing on them instead of the things we do have. The result of sin and death through sin. Death is a mysterious event and is a fearful event for humans. Epicurus wrote, death feared as the most awful of ills is nothing. For so long as we are, death has not come. And when it has come, we are not. So Socrates wrote, no one knows but that death is the greatest of all good that can happen to them. But they fear it as if they knew quite well that it is the greatest of evils. This false notion seems to impermeate these men's thinking and perhaps their hopes that death would just sort of end it all. This would be the great escape. Shakespeare in his book Hamlet evidences an uncertainty about this and thus a fear. He says, to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. The root concept of the word death in scripture is separation. And there are three kinds of separation or death in scripture. There is physical death and spiritual death and the second death. Physical death is when there's a separation of our immaterial parts from our material part, <clears throat> our body. The body goes back to dust and the immaterial parts of the person live on forever. It is the soul and spirit of a man that is eternal, not his body. The second one is spiritual death. This is a state of mortal man who will not accept Jesus Christ as personal savior. This is separation of a person from God. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians 2.1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is a living death. You are physically alive, but do not realize that you are spiritually dead. You're not connected vitally with the living God. The second death is when a mortal man dies in the condition of being spiritually dead, and that state becomes final. He will be forever separated from God. But there's an added factor. John 3.36 
the wrath of God abides on him. In our world today, people like to think of God as a God of love. And he is. And it's an infinite, beautiful, wonderful, full, just incredible love that we have a hard time understanding. But on the other side, he's a God of wrath. And it's an infinite. It's a harsh. It's a strong. It's a wrath that no human being that's thinking should ever wish to experience. We turn again to the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15. Listen as I read it. Then John says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, whether they were illustrious in earth or whether they were unimpressive, whether they were rich or whether they were poor, whether they were really, really criminals or sort of really, really nice people. I saw the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened two sets of books there were the books and the book and the book is the book of life and the dead were judged from the things were written in the books plural according to their deeds and the sea gave up the dead were, which were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them and they were judged every one of them according to their deeds then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire this is the second death the lake of fire and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So, the book of life determines the destiny of a lost person. The books of life determine the degree of punishment. And, may I say to you, there are no country club areas in hell. It is a lake of fire. The permanence of this is seen in verse 10. And the devil who deceived them. Who's them? Well, if you back up in the book of Revelation, it talks about the devil being freed from the thousand years of confinement at the end of the millennium, a thousand years, and he deceives the people that have not received Christ have gone to the far corners of the earth to follow him. And this is the last rebellion against God. I asked you to remember the word deceived when we read that Eve was deceived. Satan stepping into human life at the very beginning deceived the first woman. His very last impact into the human race was deceiving bunches of people. And you know what? That's characteristic of him. He's been deceiving people all the way from the first time to the last time. He's been deceiving them by saying, don't worry about getting right with God and being ready to meet him. You've got lots of time. That's deceitful. My wife recently talked to a woman who said, well, the next time I come around, there is no coming around again. 
You didn't have a past life. It's the point when a man wants to die and then the judgment. That's another deceitful thing of Satan. It says, you got lots of time. The word of God says, now is the accepted time to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. He's deceitful. Don't fall for his deceit. He deceived Eve by saying, you will not die. He set his idea against truth, against God's ideas, and he never wins. God does. And those that follow his deceit never win either. When Adam sinned, physical and spiritual death, oh, I was, let me go back and finish that verse. And the devil who, was deceived, who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet also are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. How long? Forever and ever. You know, that's a long, long time. When Adam sinned, spiritual and physical death became the lot of man. Apart from divine intervention, the second death would also have been the end of all men. Now the inclusiveness of sin. Because all sinned. This does not refer to the fact that all people sin individual sins. It does not refer to the fact that all people are born with sinful nature. What it does mean is that when Adam sinned, all the human race sinned with him or in him. He was the representative head of the whole human race. Paul also wrote, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23. And this verse does stand for the individual personal sins of each person. All of us commit sins. Now we may not commit the kind of sin that it takes to get your child into an elite college. We may not sin by shooting people in a mosque in New Zealand. But every one of us sins every day in word, action, and thought. We are sinners. We sin. But in our text this morning, Paul is stressing the fact that this is representative sin that he's talking about here. He goes on with the same representative thought in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. For since by a man, Adam, came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. The baby who has never sinned dies because he or she is in Adam. And when Adam sinned, so did the baby and all the rest of us. All of us were born dead concerning our relationship to the living God. <clears throat> what a stark contrast to what Adam and Eve were like when they came from the creative hand of God. 
they were very much alive in their relationship to God to a depth that you and I have never experienced in our whole lives and we'll have to wait until we get to heaven to experience. The writer of Hebrew gives us another example of this representative headship saying this, and so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Levi was a long ways after Abraham. But Levi in Abraham paid tithes till Melchizedek. That's representative. What one man does affects all his progeny who follow him. I am part Irish. John Clark was a sea captain in 1777. I'm related to him. That's my father's side. My grandfather and grandmother would have nothing to do with coming to know Jesus Christ as Savior. No matter how I pled with them, no matter, I can still just see the scene when I knelt before my grandfather with tears coming down my eyes, pleading with him to come to know Jesus Christ and the next time I saw him was in his casket. Because he and my grandma would never receive Christ, they had six kids. The only one that ever came to know Christ was my dad because of the influence of my mom. And all the rest of those people, there are no Christians that I can find except one who also became a pastor. Because my mom and dad came to know Jesus Christ and sought to follow him, their two children have come to know Christ. All of their grandchildren have come to know Christ. That's why I say, What a man does affects his progeny. And that's a very serious thing to think about. Yet the ultimate of this was Adam sinning and passing on a sin nature to every human being since that first sin in the Garden of Eden. It has affected us. And it will affect our great-grandchildren, our great-great-grandchildren, no matter how great they are. Our text says, and so death spread to all men. This is the ultimate epidemic. Every human being has caught it. The explanation of the principle, verse 13, and the statement of the explanation, for until the law, sin was in the world. From Adam until Moses, there was still sin, even though it was Moses who wrote down the law. We could not deny for a moment that sin was in the world. The first little baby, Cain, became a murderer. Lamech was a polygamist. And one day as he was out walking with his sword, somebody bothered him, offended him, 
And he took out his sword and killed them because he could. Then he waved his sword in the air as a rebellion against God and against other people. Genesis chapter 6. We see the depths of sin in the world by the time of Noah. Let me read some verses here. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. I looked at that and I said how is that different from the 21st century? I'm not sure it is any different. Then the only reason why we don't have another universal flood is because God promised us that wouldn't happen and gave us a rainbow to assure us that it would never happen, just as a reminder. Now the basis of, for the explanation. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Very technically speaking, when there is no law, there is no transgression of the law. God did not reckon to their account the sins that they had committed. There was not clearly conveyed a standard of behavior, and yet people knew that they were sinners. The law of God was written in their minds and in their consciences before Moses wrote down the law. What Paul is saying here is this. Man's sinful state does not arise out of his personal sins, which all have committed, but because of his connection to Adam. Now let's move on to the important conclusion in verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was the type of him who was to come. From Adam to Moses, people died physically because they were dead spiritually, not because they had sinned. All died, men, women, and children, because death passed on the race when Adam sinned. The recurrent phrase in Genesis 5 and in Genesis 11 highlight this truth. It'll introduce a man and say, he lived so many years and he had a son, and then he lived so many more years and he had sons and daughters, and then he lived a total of so many years and he died, and he died and he died, and he died, repeated over in each of those chapters ten times. This is a capstone of every person's human experience. And he died, and she died. So even those who did not sin like Adam died. There are two possible explanations for this. First, it refers to children. Did you ever think of how many children were killed in the universal flood? Now, don't make this a flaw and assign it to God. The death of all these multitudes was cast its anchor into the sure foundation of the sin of one man. So we are reminded then of the seriousness 
of sin. The second explanation is that when Adam and Eve sinned, they were kicked out of the garden. There was an angel there with a flaming sword. They could not get back in. No one else could ever get back in. And when the flood came, the garden was gone. No one else could ever eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil like they did. But they didn't need to in order to be infected by sin through Adam. Verses 13 and 14 are really just demonstrating the fact that sin talked about in verse 12 is not personal. This is seen clearly in the universal effect of the sin, death, which strikes even people who have never personally sinned. The last phrase of verse 14 does not seem to fit into the context. Who is a type of him who was to come? And it yet, yet it does fit for his introduction to the next section which deals with Christ. How is Adam a type of Christ? Just in one way. As one sin brought death to all, even when there was no personal sin, so Christ's act of obedience brings unfailing righteousness to those who are in him, even though they have no personal righteousness, and that's all people. 1 Corinthians 15.45 So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. From the first Adam we receive death. From the last Adam, Christ, we receive eternal life. Which Adam are you in spiritually? The Adam of the Garden of Eden or the Adam of the Garden of Gethsemane? I began this message saying death reigns is central to this whole passage. I like what one writer said. No truth is more self-evident than the inevitability of death. The earth is pockmarked with graves, and the most incontestable testimony of history is that all men, whatever their wealth, status, or accomplishments, are subject to death. Do you ever go down El Camino Real toward Tanferan and look on your left and see the Golden Gate National Cemetery it's an impressive place. All those monuments totally in a row, whichever way you look. All the grass manicured. The cemetery is full. It won't hold anymore. They're all dead. The Oriental proverb puts it this way. The black camel of death kneeleth once at each door and each mortal must mount to return never more death is a reality and each of us need to face it so we can be spiritually prepared for it there's a common exhortation prepare to meet your maker which is not a biblical verse. It's close. It's close to Amos 4.12, which says, prepare to meet your God. 
Next week we will talk more about how to do this. But let me just say in brief. You meet God, God's way. You don't meet God your way, a friend's way, a church's way, a culture's way. You come God's way or you don't come. After you've admitted you're a sinner to God and yourself and that you're going to die, that your earthly life will end, then accept God's message of love and provision for you. Jesus died for your sins as if they were his. He paid your sin debt. On the basis of this, you receive a gift you cannot earn, nor do you deserve. The gift of eternal life and a place of God's, in God's home forever, an absolutely incredible place beyond our wildest imagination. Now, if you've done that already, then God is inviting you to live the rest of your life in light of his love for you now and your destiny. You will choose to invest in his forever kingdom and seek to bring others along with you to heaven. I clipped a little cartoon from the newspaper, Family Circus. And the little girl is kneeling on her bed with her hands folded, looking up and saying, we need to talk. After a message like this, you need not, not to go your way and forget the message. You need to talk to God about what he wants you to do with your life this week. I exhort you to do that this afternoon. Let's pray.